The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So, good evening to everyone and welcome to the Buddha Loka Centre for the Monday night uh, meditation evening together. So that's lovely to see so many people. Yesterday, I think there were less people yesterday for the, the program, the Dhamma program, because yesterday was Mother's Day. So I think many people were with their mothers, which is very good. That's wonderful. Um, so I'll just introduce myself. I am Ajahn Nasarano, and I am a monk who ordained with Ajahn Brahm uh, almost 24 years ago, 23 at the moment, 24 this Vasa. And... Uh, I am originally from Perth, uh, so not from Melbourne. <laughs> some, some people think I'm from Melbourne. So, and uh, I ordained with Ajahn Brahm, and then I spent uh, 14 years of those 23 years in almost 14 years in Sri Lanka. Um, and eight of those years I lived in a cave on the side of a mountain, so it was very, very nice. It was really good. But I got too old for it. <laughs> and so, uh, um, then had to live in monasteries again. So, so that's the introduction to myself. And I've had a long association with the Buddhist um, Society of Victoria um, because I was actually a layperson here in the 1990s. And uh, I think 1995, I was the librarian here at the centre. So it's very nice for people here who are old enough to remember me as being a layperson here, because that can be inspiring for people to see members actually ordain. So so this evening I was going to uh, um, do a guided meditation. I always have a theme for the guided meditation. So not um, sometimes people have these uh, techniques, you know, there's a technique and they try and make the technique fit everyone. One size fits all, that's what they say, don't they? With all the clothes, the hats and things that you can buy, they say one size fits all. But in meditation, that doesn't work. <laughs> it's not quite true, actually. And it's pretty obvious because you see, you know, when the Buddha taught meditation, uh, he taught his meditation to his son, uh, the Venerable Rahula, he taught him five or six different approaches, you know, um, amongst them, you know, Asuba, Metta, um, many different approaches, actually. So it really depends, actually, on the individual. And of course, it depends on where our minds are at at a particular moment. They're not always stationed in the same place. So often people find they have a wonderful meditation, don't they? and they think, I've got it. <laughs> I've cracked it. I know how to do it now. They come back the next time. Oh, it didn't work. <laughs> because the mind has moved on. It's in a different position. And uh, this, it's obvious that one size doesn't fit all. And uh, with time, our minds change. So this evening I thought to um, give a, a Satipatthana meditation. Very Burmese, isn't it? Very Burmese or Myanmar, they call it now. And this is a Satipatthana meditation that I learned from Sayadaw Upandita. Have you heard of Sayadaw Upandita? But it's not the one you think. <laughs> 
there's a very famous idol, Upandita, in, in Myanmar. He's now passed away a few years ago. But this is Sayadaw Upandita Jr., who I think is at plenty. He's, he's some, I don't think he's there now, but he has. I think he's in either in Indonesia or Myanmar. So he taught it here, and I used to come to his classes as a monk, um, you know, on a Thursday night. And I liked it because it was a different approach to um, meditation than from what I'm used to. Because in this meditation, they have this idea of you have a primary object for your meditation. And usually with the Mahasi technique, it's the breath is the primary meditation. And anything else that one experiences during the meditation is a secondary object. (laughs) And that is wonderful, actually. Because often for people when they're meditating, anything else, particularly thinking, um, you know, tiredness, uh, uh, any, anything that they see as a hindrance to the meditation, they say, get out of here, I don't want this. And of course, when we have that attitude, that's a negative state of mind. And of course it's going to disturb the meditation. It's a hindrance too. So any technique that has this approach, that's just a secondary object. It's not that you're failing, (laughs) failing in meditation if you have these secondary objects. And of course this is a very important principle that uh, comes up with um, meditation, is that meditation is really about, what is it about? Being aware, knowing what's going on. If thinking is going on, you know thinking is going on, you're aware. <laughs> but if you want to get rid of the thinking, then there's a hindrance running there because this is a negative attitude. And the only thing the Buddha said that blocks our meditation, of course, is these five hindrances that he talks about so much. They don't only block meditation, they block wisdom too. The same. You know, so the five, medita- five hindrances for those that don't know is our sensual desire, looking for our happiness out in the world of sight, smells, tastes and touches. So this is, this is our usual activity actually. And when we sit down to meditation, we think about it. <laughs> we try to make the body as comfortable as possible, get everything the way we like. Um, so this sensual desire is a big block. Ill will is a number two, and that they go together. Often when we don't get what we want, we get, we get negative about it, we get angry, upset, irritated, annoyed. It shouldn't be like this. And then, of course, very common one for all meditators is um, drowsiness and dullness. And this is actually quite pleasant because at least it's not a battle. But when we finish the meditation, we may say, oh, it went so fast. <laughs> but we may have been sleeping, actually. And here we have uh, people that get a very relaxed state of mind, though. And here we often hear, don't we, of an evening, some gentle snoring in the background. (laughs) So this is Tina Mina, we call it, or sloth and torpor, or dullness and drowsiness. And uh, the next one is restlessness. People are very much aware of that. Where the mind doesn't settle, we we can't quite get what we want. We, We don't know quite what we want. Usually with restlessness, we know what we don't want. I don't want this, I want something else. So the mind is very active, a lot of energy. And then, of course, the other aspect of uh, 
too much energy in the mind is when we start reflecting on what we've done and said and, and then we can get remorseful we can you know go to and oh I shouldn't have said that why did I say that to them you know I really upset them or you know they misunderstood me or whatever and then the last one of course that the Buddha mentions is doubt and this is a very big hindrance in a lot of directions Often for meditation, it's doubt about the meditation technique. You know, should I do this? Should I do that? And sometimes people tell me they, they have so many teachings on meditation, they start going through all the alternatives. <laughs> and, and so they have a whole repertoire, but it uh, means that they're sort of thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't do this, maybe I should do that. <laughs> and so this doubt is very... Um, uh, it derails the meditation. But of course the biggest doubt can be, and you often hear it, I can't meditate. You know, I don't think I can meditate. Doubt in our own ability to meditate. And of course everyone can meditate. There's not a problem with that. And if we wish to develop it, if we practice it, and we have a very good attitude to it, it will happen by itself. Because this process of Meditation is a natural process, actually. It's not one... The more we interfere with it, the more problematic it gets. So Ajahn Brahm is always saying to us, get out of the way, <laughs> so that meditation can happen. But that's not easy for us, because each and every one of us is used to being in the way. <laughs> you know, trying to control it, trying to do it, trying to force the mind, trying to force the body using willpower, whereas we should be using, as Sanjan Brahm's always saying, wisdom power, <laughs> Work, uh, using our wisdom to see that we're actually disturbing the process by all this willing, all this doing, all this controlling. So that's very important. So the purpose of meditation is really just to know and to be aware of what we're experiencing very clearly. And, of course, what we're aware of, what we focus on, is the body and the mind. The body and the mind is our, our, our objects of, um, for meditation. And it, they are the objects for wisdom, too. Because if we know our own body and mind, we pretty much know what all bodies and minds are like. There may be individual differences, but they're pretty much the principles are very much the same. And so uh, a famous Thai meditation teacher said, if you know one tree in the forest, you know the whole forest. So it's this, this idea, but if you know it really well, if you can go really into it. So the process of meditation is really this process, first, it's a dual process of calming the mind, reducing these five hindrances, getting Letting them, getting them out of the way, I was going to say, but it sounds like too much effort, but allowing them to go, under, using wisdom and understanding to allow them to subside. And this stabilizes the mind. It purifies the mind because the thing that blocks our wisdom, that blocks our meditation, are these five hindrances, all the negative states of the mind. They, keep, they upset the mind. They make the mind very reactive. They make the mind... Um, they create this sense of desire, wanting, uh, which is very disturbing, uh, or ill will, you know, uh, irritation, anger, those sorts of things. 
Now, there are many negative states of mind <laughs> that one can uh, over needs to we need to overcome, and they are overcome uh, through this process of of meditation, calming the mind, stabilizing the mind, and then when these uh, negative aspects of the mind, the five hindrances, when they've gone, then we can see things clearly. Then it's like uh, the wind on a lake has stopped blowing and we can see into the lake. And this is often the term they use is vipassana and that's clear seeing. So it's like seeing into the bottom of the lake. And that experience of seeing clearly um, insight. I love um, Ayakima, one of my teachers, she was a, a German Buddhist nun. She used to say, insight is understood experience. I like that. I think it's very simple. I mean, it's very straightforward. Sometimes we have these sort of, you know, uh, very complicated ideas of what insight is. <laughs> and so something like that is very clear. And so that is the purpose of uh, the insight, to look into things. And from the Buddha's point of view, the way he looked into things is to break them down into their parts. Because when we break things down, we can see, especially when it's a human being, like a body and the mind, we break it into parts. Lo and behold, we can't find a self, a permanent me inside. And so this is a, a really big breakthrough to wisdom. And of course, this is what makes somebody a stream enterer, we call them, first stage of enlightenment. But of course, we also see, and this is, these are the foundational things, we see the, this impermanence, this transience change, uh, this uncertainty, which is the basic um, foundation of the whole of experience, the whole of the world we know, the whole of reality, which gives rise to this quality that we call dukkha, that it's, things are unsatisfactory because if they're impermanent, they never last. The good things don't last. <laughs> but the good news is the difficult things don't last, and that's, that's quite good. And, and of course, if everything is impermanent, then this idea of me and all those things that I count as mine are also impermanent. So there's a lovely teaching that I like uh, very much. The Buddha gave similes for our interest in the sensual world, the drawback of being interested in the sensory world, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And he, he called it, it's like borrowed goods, he said. You know, and it's, it's one of my favorites. Is, and it's very good for meditation to contemplate this because he said, you know, it's like somebody who borrows goods, well, they pay for it, really, <laughs> And they have a nice carriage that was in the time of the Buddha, and they have earrings and all the all the the uh, things that make them appear as a wealthy person. And then they go into the town, and people say, "Oh, they must be a wealthy person. They're very wealthy." And then the owner comes in the middle of the the town and takes them back. This is what the Buddha says: takes them back, and that person would be very unhappy and uh, uh, upset what's happened. And of course this is the truth of our whole lives. This body and this mind are borrowed goods. <laughs> borrowed in the sense that it's only temporarily ours. This body's temporarily ours. I don't meet many people over 80 that would like to keep the body. 
some some are in quite good condition, but most aren't. You know, if you make 80, I think, wow, doing pretty good. So this is just a temporary abode for us. But we don't live like that. And so this simile that the Buddha gave of the borrowed goods is a very good way for us to turn our attention away from that world out there and come inside. And that's the important aspect of it. Because no matter what we do for the body, the body ends up in the same place that every other body does. <laughs> but the mind, no, that's a different thing altogether. Because the mind can, well, the Buddha would always say the mind will go on after this life. Of course, many people in this society think, no, when the body dies, the mind dies. But the Buddha, and we take this from an enlightened person, an awakened person, said, no, the mind will go on unless it's understood the nature of reality. And then it can stop being reborn. And that's a tall order for most of us. <laughs> we can just uh, sort of work towards that. So this is the purpose of uh, that teaching, really, is to turn us within. So we look in, we look towards the mind, developing the mind, making the mind beautiful. And this is what I often talk about uh, after the uh, people have offered the meal. We call it the dana, the lunch offering. And I often talk about the, the um, Ajahn Brahm calling his monastery a beauty parlor. I think some people, if you said that to Ajahn Brahm, they, uh, Ajahn Brahm said that to some people, say, Bhante, it's not working. <laughs> but what he's talking about, and the Buddha is talking about, Ajahn Shah was talking about, is making the mind beautiful. Because at the end of the day, the world we experience out there is, is a reflection of our mind. There's a real world out there. But we can see, you know, if our minds are in a very good state, if they're very happy, joyful, or very peaceful, the experience of the world, very different to somebody who is depressed, anxious, angry, the world that they experience is quite a different one from a mind that has developed, you know, good qualities. And so this is what the Buddha is encouraging us to do through meditation, through our life, through wisdom, uh, is to develop these good qualities by giving, by keeping um, a standard of uh, morality, and by meditating. And uh, to develop these really good qualities of contentment, happiness, peace, um, thankfulness, all these good qualities, metta, uh, loving-kindness, uh, compassion, joy with others, successes, good qualities, and also equanimity, this positive acceptance of things as they are. So this is what the, the Buddha is encouraging us to do, how we can make our minds beautiful. And that is our job as human beings. And some human beings do succeed very well. That's lovely to see, actually. So this is um, the aim of the meditation. So I think... I was going to give you a lot more information about Satipatthana <laughs> meditation, but I think there isn't time. I may just mention a few things about mindfulness. Mindfulness, uh, we all hear, everybody's heard of mindfulness. If you haven't heard of mindfulness, I would wonder where you've been. <laughs> 
probably not in contact with people, I think, because mindfulness is a buzzword, isn't it? Everything is mindfulness these days. And um, so mindfulness has two aspects to it, and the, the Buddha mentions both of these aspects. It's paying attention to what is present now, letting go of the past and the future, and just being with whatever we're experiencing through the body and the mind. And as I mentioned before, our job as meditators is just to know. We don't have to do anything about it, react to it, but just to know it. But the second meaning, and this is a very important one, I, I actually like this um, definition of mindfulness or sati very much, and that is the ability to remember. <laughs> and this is a, and the most important thing for us to remember is the Buddha's teachings, you know, what he was teaching, and keep them in mind. And uh, one of my favorite books on meditation was Keeping the Breath in Mind. Have you heard that? Heard of that book? Keeping the Breath in Mind. So it's like remembering the breath, remembering what we're doing. That's, it's very hard, actually. I, I think I see it in myself and I see it in others. We forget very easily. <laughs> you find that during the meditation, too, that we forget the breath, if, if we're with the breath, is that, if that's the object. So keeping the breath in mind is remembering that we, this is what we're doing, what we're focusing on in the meditation. And there's a famous uh, Thai teacher, Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who taught this. So if you're interested in that book, it's, uh, I think it's a free download on Access to Insight. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, actually. And so this keeping things in mind is, is a very important aspect to it. Keeping the present moment in mind, remembering to come back, that is mindfulness. Sometimes people say, you know, when they're thinking a lot, they think, well, you know, I just, I couldn't meditate, I was just thinking. But they were aware that they were thinking. And once you're aware that you're thinking, you can come back to the object. But the main point with coming back to the object is not to create a negative rejection of the thinking. That doesn't help, because it just disturbs the mind. And when we are mindful, it just cuts through all, we're in the present moment, it cuts through a lot of our habits. And so much of our lives are run on automatic. I mean, I see it myself too, very much. Instead of being present with whatever we experience, really alive is. So I often say, you know, with mindfulness gives us the opportunity to see things rather than be them, to, to watch, to look, to learn, and to, to come off automatic pilot. Um, now we have driverless cars, don't we? <laughs> so this is, but they can have accidents too, it seems. But uh, so when we come off automatic, we're really living life much more, and we can also take responsibility for what we're doing and make choices. We have choice. So that is, um, you know, an aspects of mindfulness. I won't go into the. Uh, I was going to talk about. Uh, right mindfulness, samasati. This is uh, what the Buddha was talking about. Just may mention that for the mindfulness in the Buddha's teaching, for those that are not aware of it, 
has uh, four focuses of mindfulness. Body is one focus, and that's pretty obvious for us. And in that, um, in that, in that sort of contemplation, the Buddha included the breathing. That's a bodily activity. Um, the postures, you know, how we're sitting, walking, standing, um, or lying down. And physical activities, you know, when we're moving around during the day, that's included in it. And also the 32 parts of the body, looking at the body from the outside, breaking it down into parts, looking at the organs inside, mentally. And looking at the elements, seeing that these bodies are made of elements. And also the symmetry contemplation, so imagining, visualizing a body that's died, and then breaking down. So these are aspects of the body contemplation. And the second aspect of mindfulness. So we've got first one is the body, second one is feeling. But a better a translation maybe is experience. Um, because the Buddha is talking about we notice in our experience whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And we notice if it's coming from uh, sight, smell, taste and touch from the world outside or whether it's coming from a spiritual base from inside and so that's the contemplation of feeling or experience and then the Buddha also talks about so this is much more <laughs> I think many people they think of mindfulness they just think well you know just aware of the present moment but what are you aware of mindfulness needs to have an object to be aware of so we have these the body uh, the feelings, and also the states of mind that we're experiencing. That's another focus. Uh, and whether there is um, like a desire in the mind, aversion in the mind, or delusion in the mind. The biggest delusion, of course, is um, one of the biggest is the sense of I and me. That's, a, that's quite a big part of delusion. So we know if something is present or it's absent. We know if the mind is coming together, do we say call it samadhi, or whether it's really scattered. And we know if the mind has actually unified, this is very deep states of meditation, or not. Um, so these sorts of things. So this is the, with the focus on the... You can sometimes people think of it moods, emotions, those sorts of things. And then the last um, uh, aspect of contemplation is use, looking at our experience in terms of Dhamma, looking at our experience in terms of the Buddha's teachings, which can be very useful. So we have the teaching on the five hindrances, so we can recognize what, <laughs> what particular hindrance is running in our minds. And uh, so this is very useful because then we can know what uh, antidote we could use in that case. So I'll just finish off with, so as I mentioned, um, with this Satipatthana approach that uh, Mah Mahasi Sayadaw taught, people heard of that? You heard of Mahasi Sayadaw? He's famous, actually, a very famous teacher. So as I mentioned, the primary object, let's say, for this evening would be the breath. But you could have any primary object, you know, um, during the day, maybe the posture or the activities, you know, like walking, um, anything really. But then during that meditation, while we're meditating, if you have any feelings come up, you know, or the experience things as being pleasant or unpleasant, 
that's just an object, a secondary object. We don't have to think, get out of here. And um, if we experience any of the hindrances, we know that's part of the reflection on Dhamma, actually. Ah, this is a hindrance. And then we can come back to the primary object, the breath. Because what we're doing is stabilizing the breath, but also not making a problem when the mind goes off to a feeling or experience, we call it, or going to a mood or emotion, positive or negative, um, or when we're reflecting in terms of Dhamma. So they are secondary objects. So these are, and when we do that, in the Mahasi technique, usually there's a lot of labeling, you know, so if it's thinking, 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 um, you know, imagining, 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 um, irritation, 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 whatever. But it's not necessary because that really disturbs the mind a bit more. Um, but some people do uh, uh, like that approach. But um, And the other aspect to just emphasize before we start is that attitude is key, <laughs> is paramount in meditation. So any positive emotion is a good attitude to start with. And this evening I was going to emphasize uh, caring, but to really what Ajahn Brahm calls kindfulness. Have you heard of kindfulness? It's a combination of kind and mindfulness. <laughs> but this is very important to have a positive emotion. But there's so many positive emotions one can use, loving kindness, compassion, joy. You might have heard of somebody's great good fortune. You can get happy about that. Or somebody's good qualities we can be very happy about. But this evening I was thinking of kindness, particularly caring, because everybody knows what caring is about. They've cared for something or someone, whether it be a, a pet, a friend who is sick, um, the, whoever. So it's a, it has this sense of, of looking after somebody, concern for somebody in a very positive sense. So if one has difficulty bringing up a sense of caring, you can just bring up an image Many people find babies <laughs> bring up caring, or even baby animals, actually, they're very cute. And uh, whatever can bring up this feeling of caring. As I mentioned, looking after somebody who's sick um, is one way of bringing up that feeling of caring, getting in contact with the feeling. So now we've had more than enough talking, <laughs> so let's uh, start the meditation. And so if you'd like to find a posture that it's comfy oh put the lid on and the meditation will be for about uh, 40 minutes so we can just arrange the body just feel what's comfortable whether we're sitting on a chair or a cushion, however it is, and particularly paying attention to the head being balanced over the shoulders, what feels comfortable, and the shoulders balanced over the hips. And we can bring to mind this intention to be aware to be mindful of whatever we're experiencing with 
a sense of caring, a feeling of caring, of being kind to whatever we experience. Not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, just caring for it. And we can come into the present moment, can let go of the past and the future. Just like these um, helium-filled balloons, just to let go. One, the past and the future. Past is gone, the future hasn't come. And we can be free in the present moment, not prisoners of who we were or what happened, and not prisoners of what we think, think will happen in the future, which we are either, often either excited about or afraid of. So here in the present moment we are free. And we can just take time to arrive here, to be here in this hall now, let go of the rushing to get, to get here or, or perhaps the difficulty in finding the place. Just let go of all that past. It's finished. And we can relax the mind. Notice whatever state of mind we have. If there's any agitation, the mind rushing to get here, whatever state of mind, tiredness is very common. Just realizing what we're experiencing in the mind and just soothing it, being kind to it, caring for whatever we're experiencing, allowing it to be. Making peace with whatever we're experiencing. And now we can relax the body mentally starting at the top of the head and giving this soothing, caring, warm attention to the top of the head, the back of the head, the sides of the head. Soothing it, relaxing it.
Now we can move the attention to the forehead and give this warm, kind, caring attention to the forehead, all around the forehead, allowing it to relax. Moving the attention down to the face, the cheeks of the face, around the eyes particularly, around the mouth, the chin, and soothing, relaxing them, giving them this mental massage. and moving the attention down to the neck, all around the neck, and relaxing it, caring for it, soothing it. Uh, bringing to mind the right shoulder, starting at the neck and moving our attention along the right shoulder, soothing it, relaxing it, massaging, letting go of the burdens and the tensions that we often store in our shoulders or accumulate in our shoulders, relaxing the right shoulder. Now we bring to mind the right arm, starting at the top of the right arm and moving our attention down the right arm to include the elbow, the wrist, the hand and the fingers and giving this soothing, relaxing, caring attention to the right arm. Now bringing to mind the left shoulder and moving our attention along the left shoulder, relaxing and soothing, releasing all the tensions and strains that we carry on our shoulders.
Now bringing to mind the left arm, starting at the top of the arm and moving our attention down all around the arm to include the elbow, the wrist, the hand and the fingers of the left arm, soothing them, caring for them. Now bringing to mind the back, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention down the back, gently, mentally massaging the back, any sore or painful areas, giving this caring warmth, relaxation. Moving down the back. Now bringing to mind the front of the body, starting below the shoulders and moving our attention slowly down the chest, the diaphragm area, the stomach, the abdomen area, soothing, caring and relaxing as we go. And now bringing to mind the right leg, starting at the top of the right leg and moving the attention down the right leg to include the knee, the ankle, foot and toes, giving this caring mental massage to the right leg.
Now we bring to mind the left leg, starting at the top of the left leg and moving our attention slowly down the left leg, all around it, to include the knee, the ankle and the foot and toes. Soothing them, taking care of them, relaxing them. And now we can bring to mind the whole body just sitting here and become aware of whatever we're experiencing in the body through the senses. We can hear things, sounds, we can feel the temperature, maybe we can feel the movement of the air. Whatever we're aware of, moment by moment, just this body sitting here. taking care of it. And when the breath comes to our attention, we can pay attention to the breath coming in and going out with this feeling of caring, looking after the breath, having this feeling of caring with the breathing in and the breathing out. And if we experience any of these 
secondary objects, we have, we feel this feeling of things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, nothing much. You know, ah, oh, it's, a, it's a feeling. Or we notice any mood or mind, the, the state of the mind, emotion. Or we notice things in terms of Dhamma. Oh, this is a hindrance. But we do this with a sense of care and kindness and come back to the breath. Just breathing in with care, with caring, and breathing out with this caring. The mind wanders off, we know, ah, it's a secondary object. We can come back gently to the breath.
And so now we can share whatever good qualities we've developed during the meditation, whether it be more peace, a sense of caring, kindness, maybe some stillness, the mind coming together, or understanding. And we can share it with everyone here and everyone listening to this guided meditation. To all the beings here, the seen ones and the unseen ones, whether here or for the listener at home, wherever they are listening to this. And we can share whatever good qualities we have developed in the meditation in ever-widening circles to include all the beings around this area, wherever we are, human beings, animals, and unseen beings as well. Expanding it, expanding it to cover the whole of the earth with a sense of caring, with peace, with kindness, with understanding. and expanding it further to include all realms of possible existence, all the beings there, in whatever shape or form. Sharing these feelings of caring, kindness, peace, understanding.
And now we can reflect on the meditation and ask ourselves, how do I feel now? Is it different from when I began the meditation? Was I mindful of the breath with this feeling, this sense of caring? And was I mindful of secondary objects or other objects? apart from the breath, with a feeling of caring too. And did anything stand out during the meditation? And did I learn anything from this meditation? Learning about process of meditation, learning about the mind and the body. And we can uh, have an intention or an aspiration to develop more of this mindfulness, more of this caring at all times during meditation and during our daily lives. Caring mindfully for every moment of experience. And we can anchor this feeling of caring and mindfulness in our hearts and minds. So we can slowly come out of the meditation, open our eyes and move the body to make ourselves more comfortable.
time. So I hope uh, the uh, you found the meditation useful and you are able to be kind and mindful with the the primary object, the breath, and with the secondary objects as well. And are there any uh, comments, questions, or complaints, people? If you uh, you're welcome to uh, to uh, speak them into the microphone, or you can tell us from um, wherever you are. Tell me, and I can I can say it. So, did people find that uh, approach useful? You know, not to make a problem of the uh, so-called secondary objects. <laughs> you know, because people do. You know, I, I know so many people, especially the first time, the first initial meditations, and they say, "Oh, I was just thinking, can't meditate at all, just think." But I say to them, "Look." That's what's going on all the time, but now you're aware of it, you know, so this is really something. That's mindfulness. So often we have a very selective idea of what we want to be mindful of, but really meditation is about being mindful of whatever we're experiencing. And from that, because when we experience things uh, and we're really present with them, we can understand what's going on. And, you know, with these, um, for instance, these secondary objects in the meditation, we can tell what the preoccupations of the mind are, you know, where it's going to, you know, the things that are coming up in our meditation are the things we, we're really focusing on a lot in, lo- in our daily life and we think are very important. And that's why, you know, I encourage these positive emotions, using them with the meditation, because then the breath or whatever meditation object becomes much, much more attractive. Otherwise, it's a bit dull and it can't compare with what we think so important, which are usually the issues running in our lives, actually. So if we can hang out with the breath, if we can do some interior decorating with the breath, it makes it much more attractive, much easier to stay with. And eventually the mind takes, once the mind starts to get develop this focus going towards a very pleasant object, the mind will only go towards something pleasant. Then this automatic process can take over that the Buddha talks about. You know, this he talks about this gladness that can come up in the mind. And then from this gladness, this joy that can come up in the mind which is a very energetic state of mind. And then from that, tranquility can come up, pasadi. And then from that, happiness. And when we get this uh, pasadi, often this is when the body is very calm and may disappear. People people often get very worried <laughs> if something, parts of the body disappear. You know, people, their hands disappear, whatever, they get upset, they, they get worried. But in actual fact, that's a sign that this process, automatic process, is going, it's, it's, it's moving. And when the, uh, when the body and the mind are very tranquil, very peaceful, calm, then this happiness comes up. And it's from this happiness that the mind can come together. We call it samadhi. Ajahn Brahm calls it stillness, which is nice. And uh, then from that stillness, deep meditation can unfold. And after that, when we come out of that deep meditation, 
the mind is very clear and very pure and can see things in a very different way than from what it was seeing before, very clearly understanding what's going on. So are there any questions, any comments? No, I think that's a good sign. I always like it. Because I think if people have lots of comments, I think, wow, I wonder what they were doing during the meditation. <laughs> Especially if they're really complicated questions. Yes, there are some there. All right, Langdon, yes. Are there complaints? Or? No complaints, Ajahn. Yeah, that's good. There are a range of questions. I'm just going to start with the ones that relate to meditation. Yep. Right. And if we have time for the other ones, uh, we'll tackle those as well. Um, namaste. Um, oh, it's from uh, India. Hmm. Maybe. How will be? I will just read it as it is. Yes. How will be the breath when I am not practicing breath meditation? As soon as I start to practice breath meditation, my mind will start to manipulate the lengths of the breaths. Why is this so? That's easy. Because it's used to <laughs> manipulating things. We're used to controlling things. And often it uh, can be from different, uh, diff for different reasons, but often it's from a fear of, sense of fear, actually. You know, we control. And sometimes people have a worry, you know, about the breath, so they, they uh, control it, they interfere with the breath. And that's not uncommon experience that people have. I mean, it's good to notice that tendency. Because by and large, uh, most people wouldn't notice it. But of course, if we manipulate the breath or we're trying to control the breath, then the meditation will um, be busy for one thing. But it won't be so pleasant um, and it won't so, be so enjoyable. Um, but the breath that we are um, focusing on, the Buddha is talking about, is the natural breath. It's not a breath, not a yoga breath or anything like that. Some of this deep breathing can be useful. And uh, for instance, Ajahn Chah, a famous Thai meditation teacher, he would suggest if there's a lot of thinking going on, take a deep breath and then you can go back to the meditation. Because when we do take deep breaths, the thinking does drop temporarily. So it does have an effect on the mind. And we know for instance, if we're very angry, <laughs> very upset, very disturbed, taking deep breaths really does calm things down, doesn't it? But the idea in the meditation, especially the breath meditation, is not to manipulate it, not to control it, just to watch the natural flow of the, the breath. Because in actual fact, the body is breathing quite well without us doing anything at all. <laughs> And this is one of the insights that comes from breath meditation is we're not doing the breathing, the body is breathing. It's not something we are actually controlling. And usually the more we interfere with the breath, the more problems and difficulties there are. And sometimes people say, you know, that they, they find it uh, uncomfortable when, when they do that. But because this is quite a natural tendency in the mind to control, to manipulate, not to get negative about it. That's just really, really adding, adding uh, an extra hindrance to it. 
but just to be kind, caring, and to recognize, to see it, not be it. Recognize, ah, this is what I'm doing, you know, what the mind is doing, what I've developed, what uh, a habit that I have, you know, that has come up. And so when we see that, that can give rise to a sense of joy, a sense of happiness for us too, because it gives us a sense of freedom when we can get get beyond a habit, get behind, beyond some of these automatic responses that we have developed over time. And um, many people have developed. It's not just us. It's very common. So, And once we can let the breath just be the breath, then it will become much, much more pleasant and much more enjoyable and can take us to stillness of the mind. So that's, uh, that's uh, something for reflection anyway. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you, Langdon. There are more questions online. Are there any more questions in the room? No, they're very peaceful. That's good. <laughs> A lot of peaceful, peaceful people here. Okay. Yep. Um, as I am more, as I become more aware of the repetitive dramas in my life, mm. I become less reactive to them. Now I have more calm time than I can handle, and I'm bored. Meditation is becoming harder. Any advice? Right. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Becoming bored. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Like the, it's sort of we are we are habituated to um, a drama in a sense, and you, you can see that because people. What do they watch on TV? Teledramas. <laughs> And uh, all this sort of thing. So, and the news too is is pretty dramatic, isn't it? It's often bad news. To, you know, people having um, deaths, being uh, uh, murders, and all sorts of things. So, there's lots of dramas happening. So, if one is experiencing a lot of peace, calm time, I think great. But I would say, from if somebody said that to me, I would say what we need to look for, develop encourage is joy in the meditation you know using um, uh, some of this interior decoration <laughs> interior decoration of the breath you know or whatever med meditation object to do more loving kindness and more meta meditation doing meditation regarding oneself thinking bringing up the qualities bringing to mind the qualities of a best friend and getting in touch with that feeling one has towards a best friend, the giving it to oneself and then start radiating it to others. If one's feeling that it's a bit boring, I think it means these positive emotions are not being developed enough. You can there's so many on offer, you know, you can think about all the things, you can begin the meditation, think about all the good things in your life to develop this feeling of being thankful for all the good things one has. And when one does that, it brings up happiness and a sense of peace too because our lives are so often run by our desires, things that we think we have to have in order to be happy. And they actually make us unhappy because we haven't got them now. We're going towards them. When we get them, we'll be happy. So uh, this thankfulness reminds us that we have more than enough in our lives that are, is, is good for us and we can be thankful about. So these are all possi possible positive emotions that one can develop. There are many others, actually, that are very useful. But I think need a bit of interior decoration there, I think. 
Otherwise, he'll go for dramas outside, which is just messy and unfortunate. And we feel such a victim when we, especially when you see dramas and you think, oh, it's the same drama again. <laughs> and you realize you're running on a pattern, they're running on a pattern, the other people, and it's this interlocking sort of dramas that you can do without in your life. So create that inner beauty, that inner happiness, that inner joy. That's what I would say. So, I think that answer probably answers all the questions that possibly could be answered. <laughs> oh, great. And might have answered the one uh, relation to um, negative mind states in response to hearing all the news, but also developing more positive mind states. But yeah. there's this one other question that uh, is a bit more specific. Um, and I'll just read it out. This is the last question. Dear Ajahn, Suppose someone reaches stream entry near the end of his or her life mm. and dies mm. and gets reborn as a human. This person is reborn mm. in a worldly family and will get a worldly education and might even not be in contact with the Buddha's teaching. Mm. Can the mind remember and overpower the whole fresh input of delusion all by itself? Thank you for your teaching. Yes, I think... Once a person has become a stream enterer, this is the first stage of enlightenment. They're bound for enlightenment, so uh, for awakening. So it is a. They will definitely. They've got all the uh, ingredients, all the causes and conditions to meet the dhamma again in this life. If they're born into, say, into the West, into a country which is, doesn't have Buddhism, they will encounter it in some form or other. So it, it would just be a matter of time for them. It it won't will it's almost like a magnet. <laughs> they they have a uh, what do you say uh, um, uh, like an engagement with destiny in a way. You know that it will come to them actually. It will come to them because they've got they've uh, entered the stream of dhamma, and so that will that they will re-experience um, come to the dhamma and uh, re-experience. Uh, they will understand things and realize. Dhamma very quickly and continue their journey beyond the first stage of enlightenment to the second stage, third, and maybe even complete the whole journey to full awakening. So there's no problem. Person that's a stream enterer, they, they <laughs> I think it's almost impossible for them not to to encounter the Dhamma in this life. And also the thing is, when a person has entered the stream of Dhamma, they're becoming Dhamma, actually. So you'll find that that sort of person, even if they weren't born into a Buddhist family, they will be a very, the qualities of a stream enterers, they will be very virtuous, very moral people, very ethical people. They'll be very generous, naturally generous and kind. These are qualities of the stream enterer. And they, they, might, they have unshakable confidence in the Buddha and Dhamma and the Sangha, but they may not have met it uh, yet in their life. But when they do, it will be like a recognition, you know, just <laughs> it'll be there for them. So these qualities um, are in, inside them. So they, they will actually be, as a child, I think the uh, parents will probably be saying that something unusual about him or her, you know, and they're so kind. And we do see this with people, with children, some children, uh, when they're born, they've got such good qualities. They may not be stream enterers, but, <laughs> but 
whatever we've developed in the past life is not wasted. It will come with us, uh, especially if we've well developed it. It'll it'll come into our next life. So you see these people who, you know, obviously been uh, practicing music, been uh, devoted to music. Children that come into this life. Child genius, they can play the piano, they can write music, all this sort of thing. And this is what, what happened with Mozart. They said by five he was writing symphonies and, and composing, five years old. So how does that happen? <laughs> it has to be from a past life. And so, um, so it's not wasted. But for a stream enterer, they're becoming Dhamma. I like this idea of the stages of enlightenment. Are really like a person becoming more and more in tune with Dhamma. And what is Dhamma? It's reality. They're completely flowing with it. So an Arahant is completely in tune with nature, with the world, with reality. There is nothing, there is no delusion involved. There is no wanting, there is no desire to have it this way or that way. No aversion about the way things are. They're really flowing with it. So this is a, what we we are doing, you know, when we practice the path. We're going towards that. And anybody that is practicing the Noble Eightfold Path, this is what leads to the first stage of awakening. We, we may not be, be there, but we will probably get signs and we'll get ideas that we're changing. The way we're looking at the world is changing. We're seeing things more in terms of Dhamma, in terms of the universal qualities of the world, and less in terms of I, me, myself, and all those things, which cause so much problem in our lives and so much difficulty uh, for ourselves and others. So that's what I would say about that. That's an interesting question. (laughs) Because people do ask, you know, does a stream enterer have to re-experience that experience. And I think they would, they would re-experience it, but it probably is more like remembering it again. <coughs> Things would become through really clearly, very obviously um, in this life. But they'd also have really outstanding, some very obvious qualities of generosity, um, ethical, very high ethical standard, and, um, and uh, not a lot of doubt in their minds. Sort of a clarity about them, a lightness about them, many positive qualities. So, good, great. Nothing is wasted, (laughs) won't be lost. So, thank you for this this evening, and very nice that we can meditate together because it's a different experience from from meditating on a Zoom session or or live streaming. It's different for me too (laughs) because there's no you know, you, you don't get that sense of reacting or, or, or bouncing off other people. And you don't get that sense of support. There is a group energy with human beings, probably with all beings, actually. And uh, it can be positive, like in uh, a meditation evening, or, you know, of course you do see it when it gets negative too, when you get these mass crowds doing all sorts of unpleasant things. So now, for those who would like to, we can pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, where this all came from.
Sangha 